So DealQuest listeners, I am so excited to have Dave DeVoe back on the DealQuest podcast. For those of you who have been following us from episode one, I know there's some of you, although our, you know, our listenership is growing, so many of you weren't around back then, but you can always go back. You go back and listen. Dave DeVoe was our first guest on what was then Fueling Deals. He is now episode 91, so 90 episodes later. And uh, Dave, I know we're going to talk about some things that have happened in the last 20 months. What are some of the themes that people are going to hear about on your latest episode of DealQuest? Yeah, man, alive. Corey, you covered a lot of ground. You covered it quickly. I think we went every went back everything from the life cycle of MA over the last even couple of decades we touched on. More specifically, the last 20 months or so, including COVID, which has been a crazy roller coaster. We got into valuation, we got into deal structure. We even got into some interesting philosophical discussions along the way. So uh yeah, covered a lot of rich ground indeed. I love it. And, and listen, folks, as, as Dave always does, he gave some amazing trends and statistics uh, in terms of what's happened, what he sees coming in the future. You know, and also, you know, Dave's uh, firm has expanded in terms of capacity and people and, and, and services. And, you know, you get to hear a little bit more about that because Devon Company is doing some cool things. They were always doing some cool things, but doing some more cool things that they weren't doing a couple of years ago. So check out Dave DeVoe coming up on the DealQuest podcast. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. David DeVoe founded DeVoe & Company in 2011 to help wealth management companies optimize their business decisions. The company has supported over 500 firms in consulting, investment banking, and valuation engagements since launch. David has been a thought leader in the, on RIA practice management for over 17 years and was recently named RIA M&A Guru by Barron's Magazine. I've known that Dave's an RIA M&A guru, but, you know, <laughs> but Barron's carries a little more weight than my knowledge, I think. Sure. That's pretty cool. He previously served as the Managing Director of Strategic Business Development at Charles Schwab Advisor Services. In that role, he developed and led Schwab's transition planning platform, which provides comprehensive M&A and succession planning services to registered investment advisors. During that eight-year period, he provides strategic counsel to over 300 advisors. I'm not going to read his entire uh, bio. It's, it's going to be in the show notes. But you know, before joining uh, Schwab, he was at uh, American Express uh, at the Strategy and Business Development Group. He's a Berkeley and uh, Cornell graduate. And here's the interesting part. Dave DeVoe is the first person that I'm having back on for a repeat interview on what is now the DealQuest podcast. And believe it or not, folks, for those of you who didn't catch on to this at the very beginning, Dave DeVoe was the very first episode of what was then called the Fueling Deals podcast, launched on February 20th, 2019, 20 months ago, the day after my birthday. That's when we launched it. And this episode is going to air on October 21st, and it's going to be episode 91. So we've had 
90 or I guess 89 episodes between his first appearance and this one. So I'd love to welcome back to what is now the Deal Quest podcast, David DeVoe. Great to have you back. Well, it's an honor to be here. Honor to hear those great accolades. You know, clearly a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Corey. And congratulations. I mean, what a great achievement you have here. 90 and counting podcast, really helping people that need to learn more about negotiation and getting things done. I think it's wonderful. So I'm um, happy to be back. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dave. You know, it's interesting. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but you know, when I, when I found out there was a thing called pod fade, the majority of podcasts don't make it past 15 episodes. I'm sort of a do it and not do it guy. Like I'm going to do zero episodes or hundreds <laughs> of episodes, not like 14 or 12. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so yeah, so we're well along the way, which is great. And listen, folks, I wanted to have uh, David back. I mean, you know, when we first started the podcast, I recorded eight episodes, put them in the can because that was the advice to get ahead. And then we chose to uh, launch Dave's as number one because when you're doing a deal podcast, a lot of people think about M&A and that kind of stuff. And although the podcast is specifically about all types of deals, you know, from big M&A and financing deals to licensing and joint ventures and strategic alliance, you know, we figured what, who's better to start than a top investment banker and consultant and valuation person in the M&A space. And also, you know, although it's not the only area we work in, the RIA space, the investment advisor space is our biggest single niche. And Dave focuses in that space. So it really made sense. So what we want to do on this episode, uh, and I'm going to a question preceding this, but, you know, a lot has happened in the last 20 months. So I want to get an update from Dave on what's going on in the space. But Dave, before we did that, you know, listeners, if you go back to that first episode, you can ask some great stories about Dave's first entrepreneurial ventures while he was in college. But Dave, my opening question on this new format, or it's has been for a while, is actually not what your first entrepreneurial experience is, but what is your first deal of any type that you can remember? <laughs> yeah, let's see. You know, well, it's interesting that that first company you allude to, my little clothing company that I started while I was in college it's probably my first deal I should have done. I mean, I had, I had these relationships with Nordstrom's and surf shops and manufacturing. And, and I think it's heartbreaking because I was just like, I didn't know much about business. I was like, okay, I guess I'll go do something differently. And I didn't sell the firm, which, you know, in retrospect was just a poor decision. But I'll answer your question in terms of first deal within the REA space. Clearly, I did a couple of deals when I was at American Express as well. But the first deal, interestingly, well, I'll talk about the second one. The first deal that we did, it's so neat. As soon as we finish this podcast, I'm actually meeting with a client and one of the folks on their team, chief strategy officer now, was the first connection that I made running Schwab's M&A platform. So that was number one. And then number two, it's really interesting. I just had a reporter call me because um, it was announced that EP Wells took on some private equity. And the second deal that I worked on, again, this is 17 years ago, I think 16, 17 years ago when I, I had launched and was running Schwab's M&A platform, were the, the guys at EP Wealth that were buying this little REA back in the day. And you know they're probably 20, maybe even 30 times the size of the company that they bought so long ago. So um, yeah, it's great to see progress. It's great to see people that you like and admire and, and we're happy to help way back when now doing uh, these great things in today. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you, know, you and I have something in common because I always have the story about my flyer delivery business, you know, delivering circulars in Brooklyn door to door when I was 15 and 16. And I made the same mistake you did. I mean, I was making a few hundred bucks a week in the 70s as a, yeah. as a 15 year old kid making 300 bucks a week. And yeah, I had no concept of enterprise value, which is something that, you know, we always preach to advisors who are leaving, you know, wirehouses and, you know, banks, trust companies to become independent to be able to build enterprise value. 
Well, I similarly had no concept that I had contracts and, you know, and stuff like that. When I went away to college, I just gave up the business. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I could have sold that to one of my friends, at least, who could have taken it over. I mean, that was a 300 buck a week cash flow. Absolutely. Uh, There's some value there. Absolutely. 15-year-old kid. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, all right, Dave. So, so listen, we have, I mean, it's hard for me to think back to 20 months ago when, you know, you were on the, the show originally and, and people can go back to that episode. It would be actually a cool thing. People go back and check out that episode. By the way, there were also a couple episodes that I did um, out of, uh, you know, D- Dave runs this great uh, M&A uh, summit every year. This year, it's going to be virtual coming up, but it, normal, normal times it's in person. And, uh, you know, last year's summit, I did actually a couple episodes, you know, talking about all the wisdom that came out of that. So you can check out those as well. I don't have the episode numbers handy. But Dave, so a lot, you know, it's even hard to think back to 20 months ago. It, it feels like it was another universe. I mean, so much has happened in the world, you know, in general, so much has happened in the RIA space in terms of deals that have been done in terms of the impact of, you know, of, of COVID. So just, you know, catch us up on um, what are you seeing now? What's, what's evolved over, the, over those last 20 months? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, clearly been quite a journey, even a little roller coaster in there. But um, yeah, I think 20 months is a good period. It's not just back to when COVID started, let's go a little further back. So, you know, 2019 was a really good year for REA M&A activity, you know, kind of a weird thing to say, good year for it. One, I think it was a sixth successive record year of M&A activity, so M&A was hot. But, you know, what I'm talking about is actually healthy M&A. And when I look back at 2019, I feel like it was healthy because we had steep growth. It was about a 30% increase above the year before. So significant, not a massive spike, but you know, strong, steady growth. And I think 30% growth year after year of M&A activity is healthy for the industry. I'll share a little bit more about that. What do I mean? This industry, you know, Corey, you know better than anyone. I'm a nerd. I'm happy to talk through it. But we are going to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of advisors that are going to be selling over the next several years. We have an industry with 10,000 firms, only 30% have written succession plans in place. And it's an aging advisor base. I mean, the average owner age is about 62 years old. You know, Cerulli does great work. They talk about the average advisor being, I think it's 53. But when you look at the owners, they're much older. So what do we have? We have this this, uh, intersection point of lack of succession planning and the fact that folks are methodically moving toward retirement. So what does that mean? When you're only having 100 transactions a year for an industry with 10,000 firms, even 5,000 over 100 million, This is a problem. We should be seeing 300 transactions a year. Matter of fact, each year we don't have 300 transactions. It means we have a growing supply of transactions that's going to need to come onto the market. So, you know, back to Dave being a nerd, when I think, okay, how do we go from here well below what we should be transacting at to what eventually is going to have to occur? We have to have to have a clearing occur where all the supply comes onto the market. I'd rather see a pretty steep 30% year after year growth trajectory of M&A activity than, you know, sort of just going more of a flat line and then a massive spike where ultimately if, if a huge surge comes, a huge one, it will overwhelm the buying power of buyers. Mm-hmm. They just won't be able to absorb them all. You know, the complexity of M&A. So, you know, a, a starting point, I'll pause and see if you have any questions on that before I switch over to COVID, something that's a little newer. But, but yeah, 2019, in many regards, was a healthy thing that I'd love to see repeated in the future. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so let me ask, so I, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I, I'm all, I only feel comfortable doing this because I know I'm challenging myself in the same way, because yep. you and I have actually been on stages together, you know, and other things together, you know, going back probably at least five, actually probably more, six, seven, eight years. Least, you yeah. and I have both said that there is a, that the, uh, the average owner is aging, that there's got to be, you know, there's going to be shift in demographics, that there has to be more deals. And I think everybody in the industry, you know, not to just leave us alone out there, Dave, hanging out, you know, having it not happen as quickly. Like everybody in the industry thought that there'd be more deals sooner, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. What is finally going to make that happen, right? Uh, you know, because people seem to be hanging on and, and we've been tooting this on for a while now, right? I think um, it's sort of a mixed thing. I think part of it is good news. You know, the human body lasts much longer than it used to, right? You know, 65 is a metric that some people have in their head around when advisors should retire. Well, my dad's 82. He beats me almost, you know, every time we play golf, he beats me. Often when we play tennis, he beats me. You know, the human body, the human mind is much different than it was, you know, a couple decades ago. So the good news is we're not wearing out as human beings. The bad news is, you know, as you kick the can further and further down the road, especially when you go to an industry level with thousands and thousands of firms, eventually there, there could be an inflection point where that deluge occurs. So I think it, it, it's interesting too, you know, you can get into psychology. I used to think it was the psychology, this slippery slope from, gee, I need a succession plan. Let me plan to do that to, wow, succession means change. Change is not good. I don't like change. That also means retirement, more change. And ultimately, that's a slippery slope to death. I don't want to die. I'm not going to put a succession plan in place. So I'm no Freudian uh, expert here. But I think that was part of it. I think the good news yet again is that advisors now are starting to engage with M&A, perhaps not for a retirement play, more often than not, it's a scale play. Folks are realizing that if they're 100 million, life would be easier if they're part of a half billion or billion dollar firm. Even multi-billion dollar firms are realizing that, hey, there's going to be some mega firms and maybe we want to be part of one of those because the game is going to continue to change. So it's always been a dynamic space. The dynamics just keep changing. Yeah, totally right. And uh, and listen, we've had the whole conversation. We won't spend a lot of time on it here on the advantages of getting ahead of the game and the, the way options narrow if you wait too long and all that kind of stuff. That's that's clearly the case. But yeah, let, but let's jump into COVID. And really, I, I think you'd probably stutter anyway, but I'd love you to start like, let's call it immediately pre-COVID, right? You know, or pre-awareness of COVID, which I, I sort of look at as March, right? Even though it was around before that, March is when everybody said, oh, what is this thing? And lockdown started to happen or whatever. You know, right before that, you know, where was the mindset of the industry? Where were deals? Where were valuations? And, you know, that kind of stuff, deal structures. And then, you know, what has happened since? Yeah, yeah. A roller coaster for sure. So we started this year with a bang. January 2020 was an all-time high of monthly activity. You know, I've been doing this for 17 years, had good data for a couple of years before that. And before that, the, the industry is just a shadow of what it is today. So, you know, I can say with conviction that January was the, the most active month we had ever had in this industry. But that was driven by a couple of factors, including what you touched on. Valuations were at an all-time high. You know, again, I've been tracking this. I went on record probably about a year and a half ago saying, hey, Valuations are now officially at an all-time high in the industry. It eclipsed the peak that I didn't think it would eclipse before, which was 2008, early 2008. And it eclipsed it in a good way. You know, in 2008, there were a lot of jokers, a lot of folks that had a bunch of cash in their wallet and they weren't super sophisticated and they were throwing it around. 
And, you know, a lot of those firms blew up and went away. Today's buyers are sophisticated. They've created models in many cases that can unlock greater profitability and greater growth. And you know better than anyone, when you have those two elements, you can pay a higher valuation. So we could talk a little bit more about, you know, not everyone can hate pay the highest valuation, but uh, suffice it to say, uh, valuations were on an all-time high. And then you're spot on, you know, January, some rumblings, February, a little bit more of a fear factor, March hitting in all cylinders. Matter of fact, we actually look at February as when it started impacting this industry. Mm-hmm. We saw the, the deals drop from that all-time high to less than 50%, you know, um, starting in February, March again being low. And we went into second of four phases that Devon co-created. You can see it in our RAA deal books that we come out with once a quarter. We'll have one out in a week. And, you know, four phases. The first, once COVID hit, the four phases of post-COVID RAA M&A is, you know, phase one is just deals that are getting done. It hits. If you're negotiating a deal and you're far, far along, you're going to land that plane. You're going to get it done. But, you know, part of that started happening in tandem with phase two, which is this lull of activity. We can talk a little bit about it. There's this divergence that we saw where the lull, you know, it hit everyone initially. They were like, wow, COVID, what's happening here? Let me catch my breath. But firms under a billion, firms that were not professionally managed really slowed down for a longer period. Firms over a billion, you know, sort of dusted themselves off and started doing deals. As a matter of fact, a lot of deals, 50% more deals than average. So, you know, phase two was this lull that happened for, you know, frankly, it was only about four months. I expected to be three or four quarters, but it was really about four months that the industry had this lull of activity. And we've now solidly moved into phase three. Phase three is a surge of activity. We went on record too, about halfway through the quarter saying, hey, heads up, we actually just hit, we're back on track. The lull has passed. We're now at the surge activity. We just eclipsed a record number of transactions that we've seen in a quarter. So I won't say the number, but I'll tell you Q3 2020, despite what I expected, maybe what you expected, which advisors in our poll, we poll advisors, you can find that too, um, a poll that we did a couple months ago. They expected 2020 to be a, a soft year, but sure enough, we're back on track. Valuations never pause through this process, Corey. You know, even in that lull of activity, we have sophisticated buyers that had been through 2008. They were looking at the cash flow, and, you know, frankly, you know, Q1 cash flow of 2019 was pretty similar to Q1 cash flow for 2020 for a variety of reasons, but they didn't blink on the valuation. They did blank on deal structure. And deal structures went from, you know, close to 80% down in many cases, down to 50% down. And gee, you know what? We're going to put some barriers in place or some some risk mitigation techniques so we're both um, sort of sharing in the risks. And I'll tell you, the roller coaster is back up. We see the deal structures equally attractive as they were back in, you know, December 2019 and January 2020. So yeah, quite a roller coaster indeed. You know, it, it's really interesting there because obviously, uh, you know, listeners, you got to understand like, I, you know, I have a firm that is a little bit of a microcosm in the industry because we do a lot in this industry, but it's still anecdotal, right? But the sure. interesting thing is our anecdotal experience is exact. Yeah. And, but, but Dave is, it, you know, is the geek. Uh, effectually, he calls himself that. He's the guy with the numbers. His deal books are, are amazing that they put out every quarter. You can really, you really get great insight into a lot of things that's going on, going on in the industry that he monitors. So you should, you should check them out. But my anecdotal experience, you know, my little microcosm of the RAA, M&A world uh, really tracked that. I mean, you know, we had a couple of deals in progress and, and they got done, like you said. We had our smaller firms that look at deals who put like, you know, I, I have a lot that's come back over the last couple of few months that, that were, you know, they were in a little wait and see on hold and whatever. None of those deals died. They're all back. Either closed or in the process of, you know, of going down the road there. 
and it is a little shot. I mean, listen, I'm pleasantly surprised. We have been, we've had some of our busiest months in business during COVID, you know, after that sort of wait and see hiccup uh, period. So it's a great thing. And, uh, and maybe yeah, a little surprising, you know, we sort of anticipated the timing to be longer than, uh, you know, as you, as you did as well. So it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. It's kind of shocking. And, you know, I'm hoping it's a V curve, right? You know, yes. we had that four month decline and two months, if you just look at the billion dollar plus deals and, you know, the surge is back, you know, 2008, going back in history, you know, we saw a W curve. It was much more drawn out, you know, in 2008, the REA deals really slowed down for not only several quarters, but even a year or more started surging back up. They came back to the tables and then it just collapsed again. So we'll see, I guess, you know, COVID is real. It's going to impact REAs. You know, we started the conversation with succession planning and the average age. I mean, it can be a little scary. I mean, going into the office now is arguably a life or death decision in some cases. And uh, the good news, the silver lining is that hopefully more advisors will now fire up, get their succession plans done, do it internally, do it externally, whatever it takes, but mitigate some of the risks that um, this a lot of firms have individually as an exposure point. And clearly this industry has an exposure point. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, let, let, let's jump into this because the other thing that, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, in one-on-one conversations and from stages in, uh, you know, the press and, uh, you know, others have talked about is the challenge of this industry with next gen. And what have you seen in terms of, because it's great to say, hey, we'd love to do an internal succession, but if you don't have the, the people in place who could really run the firm, you know, and or have the capital. Now, there's a lot more, there are many, many more options than when you and I first started talking about this in terms of funding and capital options, whether it's lending or equity, you know, minority equity pieces or whatever to fund internal succession than they used to be. But what about the real dearth of next-gen talent that the industry has done a horrible job over the years? Have you seen any shift in that? Because we've been talking about that for a little while. You see any improvement in the industry on that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's, again, sometimes advisory firms, you know, don't want to take their hard look, that hard look. And, and there's two extremes there. One is they don't have the talent in place. Oftentimes there's, there's an intuition there. The other extreme is they've waited too long and the firm is just worth too much. The, the next gen isn't going to be able to afford it. The mail truck is just too far away from the dog. The dog's not going to catch it. It's moving too quickly. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm from California, so I can talk about Buddhist concepts there's this Buddhist concept of, you know, this being the case, now what? This being the reality of the situation, let's not avoid it. Let's deal with it. If we don't have people in-house, you know, let's accept that and now now move on. If if G2 can't afford it, you know, let's deal with that and figure out what the what the solution set is and engage. So I think advisory firms across the continuum need to focus on G2 and they need to do it for a couple of reasons. You know, part of that survey that I talked about, um, I think it's called the time is now. If I recall correctly, you, you'd think I'd know this right off the top of my head. I have a wonderful marketing person now that puts names to all these things. But um, right. we did a survey in, in part of that survey, 57%, Corey, 57%, a majority of the firms said that if they had to transfer management and leadership to G2 tomorrow morning, 57% said it would be bumpy at best. Mm. Some said much worse than bumpy. Some said a disaster. Some said, you know, we don't even have G2 in place. So only 10% said it'd be as good or even better. So, and, you know, I think this is an alarm bell. So even if you have a succession plan in place, even if you've identified those people, this is a people industry and your ability to coach them more effectively, 
provide more professional feedback and reviews, to refine the incentive compensation plan, really to migrate responsibilities over there, over to their plate. So it's not a theoretical construct. You're helping them actually learn how to run the firm, how to make these decisions, how accounting works, you know, how to focus on marketing and all these things. You know, then you're really starting to create an industrial strength organization. So that G2, you know, part of it is is solving it so you can sleep a little better at night. And frankly, your clients can sleep better at night because your clients are actually wondering about it. If there's not a clear succession plan, they're starting to wonder, you know, gee, what's the responsibility level of this client? But if you have identified that team, you know, really coaching them to be the very best successors as possible. So there's no better investment you can make. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. We mentioned in your bio that, you know, at a high level, you do investment banking, you do consulting, you do valuation work. But I happen to know because, uh, you know, I follow you a bit and we can so we keep in contact. You know, a lot has happened at uh, Devon Company over the last 20 months in terms of additional services that you guys and offerings that you guys have, some key personnel you brought on. Give us an update about, uh, you know, some of the expanded uh, services and team that you have at, uh, at Devon Company. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we keep chugging along. We started, as you know, almost nine years ago. It was just me. We'll have our 14th person join in two weeks. And we just keep expanding and going deeper on what we're doing. So you might recall two years ago, you mentioned capital and passing. Devote Capital Works. There's so many different solutions. There's now 30 different options for firms, you know, 30 different providers in the marketplace specifically to RAAs. So we created a methodical approach. It's complimentary. It takes 30 or 45 minutes. We'll ask you 20 or 30 questions to determine, you know, hey, these three solutions are good for you or these two are one and these other four or five, you know, just don't make sense or whatever else. So we'll guide people through that. We created a, a coaching platform where, you know, coaching your next gen is critical. We do coaching on, on that front. We also do coaching our principles. We have, you know, four people on the team now that actually a total of six people that have run billion dollar plus RAAs. And four of them are actively providing coaching services, you know, bi-weekly calls with REAs like anyone on the call to help them look around corners and run their business better. We also created a one-to-many coaching platform. We call it an accelerator. We just finished our first one. It was a six-month program, you know, monthly rhythm with, we had nine, you know, one to $3 billion advisors um, that are friends of DeBone Company pilot it. We're now opening it up to a broader group um, to optimize the value of your firm. So once a month, we get the gang together. It's like a study group on steroids. The next hire is really exciting. I mentioned that survey. I've, you've been hearing me talk about human capital, you know, best kept secret. And I think we're doing as much or more human capital than anyone else in the industry. And that's a core focus. So we have a full-time managing director that's coming on with great experience that will be starting, you know, maybe even before or after you launch this, but she'll be starting shortly and, and spend all of her time really focused on helping the advisor community run their businesses better with that that critical investment, their human capital. So um, yeah, lots of exciting stuff indeed. So that's great. Uh, there's so many ways that you help advise and you know this industry so well. So let's, let's get back a little bit. So we talked about, you know, sort of uh, the past 2019, we talked about immediately pre-COVID in 2020, we talked about COVID and coming, you know, 
I don't want to say out of it in terms of the pandemic, but out of it, at least in terms of, yeah. you know, uh, uh, how the industry adjusted to it. Let's look forward a little bit. So, you know, we still, you know, valuations have stayed strong, which means that they're at all time highs. You mentioned sure. some things around deal structure. I mean, I remember a time when you used to regularly say to a client that, you know, it's 25 to 33% yeah. down and the rest over whatever, three years, five years, whatever. Like you said, down payments pushed up, you know, sometimes as high as 80%. Now they've come down more like 50, you know, but it's still above what, you know, sort of in the traditional world, you know, the quarter to a third it used to be. Uh, you know, you mentioned some things about uh, risk shifting. You know, I've seen that as well, where there's some, you know, more risk if clients don't stay or come, you know, whatever, lookbacks, uh, adjustments, earnouts, whatever, you know, in deals. I know none of us have a crystal ball to the future and a million things can happen in the world that affect the market and all that kind of stuff. But just in terms of trends, what are we seeing? I mean, there's certain things like more, you know, money, private equity, even, you know, firms uh, th that are doing minority investments, which never used to be around. You know, the ecosystem keeps growing. You know, on the flip, we have people like Goldman Sachs looking to get into custody and hiring some people out of Schwab and Pershing, uh, recent announcements, right? So, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, trends happening there. You know, how do you see all that affecting the future of the, of the industry? Yeah, yeah. I think, it, you know, it, it's a dynamic industry. I mean, the starting point and the good news is, is, you know, the industry is the white cowboy hats. These are people taking a fiduciary approach to helping the, the investing public. So, you know, honored to be part of this community. And literally our mission is, hey, we can't help do the great work that all these REAs do for the investing public, but we sure can help them run better companies so they can touch more and more people, help them, you know, help more and more Americans um, invest their money and achieve their, their, their goals and their, their objectives. So, you know, so that foundational thing, I think is just, it's attracting more and more interest. It's attracting more and more smart people it's attracting more and more private equity, and it will become, I think, more and more dynamic. We've been in the space for years and even decades, you know, approaching decades, you know, and it's been a dynamic space, but I think it's really going to accelerate. So a few trends that I, I see happening. One is we'll, we'll go through the rest of this lull on the M&A activity. I'm sorry, the surge, phase three. We'll see additional activity that we're, we'll spike for a while. I could see that sustained for several quarters. And eventually, we'll we'll move back to that upward trajectory that I hope to see around 30% or more a year, consistently year after year. I'm very sensitive to, and the reason I, I track so m a in such a disciplined format or approach is because I am worried about it becoming unhealthy, you know, where we have too many sellers and not enough buyers, and that's just going to create some disasters for the industry. So I think on the m a front, that's going to happen. I think the other thing that's related but separate from that is we're going to see the emergence of these mega firms. These aren't just big firms, biggest part of it, but these are sophisticated management teams that are intelligently running organizations. They often have private equity backing or at least capital to do things really creatively. So just because you're big doesn't mean you're, you're what I'm categorizing as a game-changing mega firm. It's because you're big and you're doing things differently. And I think we will see a diversion here. We will see these mega firms that will separate from the pack, they're going to grow faster. They're going to do things differently. They're going to offer, you know, I, I'll say it, they're going to offer uh, greater value to the clients. It's a trend that's emerging. Now, the good news is that that doesn't mean that everyone should pack it up and go away. That doesn't mean we're going to see massive consolidation, you know, from, from 10,000 firms in the industry down to, you know, 2,000 or 5,000 or even 8,000. There's very low barriers to entry. And once you're in this business, Wearing that fiduciary hat um, with the strong attention to detail, all the 
the nature of the beast in this industry. Advisors are taking care of clients well, and the small, medium, and large will continue to exist. So I don't think there's an existential threat. This isn't, you know, hey, you got to get bigger, go go home. Um, it's not going to be the travel in- industry when the dot-com hit, but we are going to see this divergence and some of these mega firms are just going to do things differently. I think, you know, we're also going to see related to that, but separate, is technology is going to shift from being an enabler to make things more efficient, to take headaches off people's plates, give them more time, make them more industrial strength, give them almost synthetic scale to a degree. We're going to see start seeing technology, you know, drive growth directly. Some of these mega firms are going to start, you know, thinking very creatively. And a matter of fact, we have a, you mentioned the M&A Plus Summit that's coming up and please attend again and report away. I guess this time it'll be remotely. But one of the speakers I just got off the call this morning, they're going to be talking about how they're using technology almost with a Cambridge Analytics, sort of a mega data approach to applying technology and intelligence to every stage of the funnel for a sales cycle all the way through close, you know? And by the way, COVID has only accelerated this. It's just changed. You can imagine people using Zoom and things like that. It's just changed the event. So yeah, long story short, a lot of dynamic activities that are going to be occurring to the space. So it's a fun time to be part of this industry. I agree with that, by the way. You know, I I think uh, just the trends are, you know, just so continue to be in favor of independence, right? And 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 the level of sophisticated teams that are moving out and the infrastructure and support around them in terms of yeah, technology and financing and consulting and you know, you name it, is amazing. And it's just, you know, it's just really a maturing industry. Let's go to the other extreme. And I, I don't think we're near that yet, but you know, you look at, uh, all right, there is a fundamental difference. These mega firms are still going to be fiduciaries, which is very different than being a brokerage firm where you don't have a fiduciary obligation. But inherently, as, as scale comes in, you know, a lot of people criticize, for example, the wirehouses for all of the, uh, you know, the advisors leave because they're frustrated by compliance and all the systems they got to deal with and they got to get everything approved and, you know, and all that stuff. And, you know, we always talk about the fact that a lot of compliance isn't true compliance. If you look at true compliance is what is allowed by law or not, most of what compliance does in these big firms is risk management, right? And they say, hey, if we're really big, we're going to restrict people from doing this, making these kind of decisions, not because it's illegal, but because it exposes us to risk and we can't manage that when we have thousands of advisors. So what do you think the risk is of these mega firms over time, you know, creating environments? Uh, and again, there is a difference between a fiduciary, but still creating environments that start to feel more restrictive or more, you know, cookie cutter or more, you know, like the, the things that are that independent advisors have left. You know, I'm just curious as to your thought on that. And, you know, that's part of the way probably the smaller and medium size are going to continue to compete to say, hey, you're going to have more, more say, more discretion, less rules involved. So, you know, I'm curious as to your view on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of freedom that, you know, advisors, breakaway brokers, whatever we want to call it, feel when they jump ship. A matter of fact, in many cases, it's the impetus for them to leave. Um, I think you said it well, there's, there's, uh, depending on how you define compliance, that can run the continuum of of leader, good stewardship, you know, even marketing. And you know, you're at a wirehouse and reporters call and you can't talk to them. And you have really important things to say. But much more importantly, you know, within the the constructs of the the SEC, it gives a lot of freedom to do what's best for the client. So, you know, clearly compliance 
not our bailiwick, not what we focus on day to day. Legal, I always defer to experts like you. You know, that's a lot of complexity there. Last thing you want to do is, you know, color outside the lines. That's why folks like you exist to to help guide people to the right decisions. But um, yeah, just a completely different world. And and you know, literally why what you know, folks like you and I use the the construct of white cowboy hat is within that those constraints and guardrails. And um, there's so much good uh, that can be done for the investing public. Yeah, no question about it. So yeah, I agree. I don't think I think that's why the mega firms will never be have all the issues never be the White House. But there is something about scale that does change you know things and you know and 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 listen. I've always said there's room for all the models, not only independent space, but frankly there's room in the you know for the IBDs and and the White Houses. Although you and I tend to be evangelists for independence, you know uh, there are also just certain folks uh, you know who should never be entrepreneurs. And I don't mean that as a diss in any way. I just mean yeah, the lines know, are gray. The lines they get grayer each year. Yep, you're spot yeah. on. Yeah. All right. Any uh, before we conclude here, uh, Dave, any any uh, last minute uh, thoughts, tips, things that we haven't covered that you want to uh, you know make people aware of in terms of what's going on in the industry or anything about what you're up to. No, I'll tell you, you're you're a crackerjack. It's such a pleasure to talk to you when you you hit all the headlines and the highlights. Um, so, you know, I'll just uh, nothing to add. I, I think it was a lot of fun. It's great. And again, Corey, I mean, it's it's so great to see people that you like and admire do great things. And uh, honored to be, you know, the the first time dual headliner. I, I think what Steve Martin and a couple folks have a certain jacket. That I think they get it Saturday Night Live after they've been on a couple times. So. <laughs> Good to be part of the the gang there of these future multiple interviewees. Yeah, thanks again for having me and thanks for doing all the great work you do. Appreciate that. So I, I do have a closing question, but before I do that, what's the best place for people to find out more about uh, you and, and Devo and Company? Yeah, indeed, www.devoandcompany.com. So in life, we're Devo, Amperstan and Co. Online, it's just uh, Devo, D-E-V-O-E and company.com. Great. So Dave, uh, you know, so listeners who've been listening for a while will know that, you know, when it was fueling deals, my final question was about one of my highest values, authenticity. And you can go back to episode one and hear Dave's answer to that one. But since we've rebranded as DealQuest uh, over the last, I don't know, uh, 40 episodes, 50, whatever it's been, my final question is actually about my highest ideal, which is freedom. And to me, uh, I wear this little, uh, my antent.org bracelet that says freedom on it. It's actually the only piece of jewelry I wear. And for me, freedom, uh, you know, has to do with everything like bigger issues, like freedom from oppression from all people. But it also, you know, has to do with why I'm an entrepreneur and 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 why I love working with, you know, breakaway brokers and advisors and other entrepreneurs and other industries who, you know, build and create things. Uh, Dave, what does freedom mean to you, and how does it impact your life and business? I love these questions you you end with. They're they're so great. I'll, I'll actually even connect the two to be authentic about it. I'd love to say something really inspirational, but when you mentioned freedom and I think about it, I think back to the day I left Schwab, you know, great organization, you know, to launch development company, et cetera. A day or two later, I got on a plane. I went down to uh, Mexico for a wedding and I met this guy in the, the van. They had a van going to the, the destination, et cetera. I'm launching my company, you know, I'm going live. And he was already an entrepreneur. And he said, it was very profound. He said, um, yeah, you're giving up the illusion of security for the illusion of freedom. <laughs> and I thought, what are you talking about? I'm running my own company. I'm calling all the shots, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about it, you know, in these large companies, are, do you have massive security? No, not really. Anything could change on any given day. And Corey, to be authentic, right now I am struggling with freedom. You know, I, I just got back, I spent a week in Miami and, you know, I intended to, to spend some time vacationing and having fun. 
and throughout the day, I just continue to crank away, I crank nonstop. Yeah. I'm having a blast what I'm doing, but I've also, you know, that blast ends up having me committing to do so many things that I sometimes find myself fighting for freedom. So in the next episode, maybe you can share uh, how I can have greater freedom within this entrepreneurial mindset that I've created. No, Dave, I, I think that's, I appreciate that authentic answer. And it's something that we all deal with. And, uh, you know, it's great. Yeah, we don't have a boss, right, as entrepreneurs, except for all our clients. And if we're doing it right, frankly, all our employees, not that they're really our boss, but we need to, like, we're a resource to them. If we're setting up rights, they need us. You know, our clients need us. So, yeah, I love that comment about it being somewhat of an illusion of freedom. You know, I do think that the ultimately we do have the ultimate decision making authority. And I think that does give us a freedom. But figuring out how that, you know, really applies and how we have day to day freedom is a classic entrepreneurial challenge. Yeah. Love it. Dave DeVoe, thank you so much for coming back and being a guest on the DealQuest podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.